conclude the book of Acts with the final two verses. If you're uh, here this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage. And, and then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. And then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus with all confidence and no one forbidding him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning as a simple church and a simple gathering of your people. And Lord, how our, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength was smitten by the news of what happened in Las Vegas as we found out some of us on Sunday and some of us on Monday, this great violation of your creation, unspeakable, Lord. There are no words to describe the horror and the darkness and the evil of it. And we this morning just want to join our hearts together in a effectual, fervent prayer for the families of the 58 people who lost their lives in that carnage. And we ask, Lord, in a way that whether you as their God or you as their creator, that you would reach into the lives of all of the survivors as they're trying to put things together and trying to understand and dealing with all of the pain and, and all of the things that we can only imagine are hitting them wave upon wave. And we ask that you would minister to them in the way that only you can, Lord. We pray for so many that remain hospitalized and so many in critical uh, condition and all who were wounded in that awful attack, that you would continue to heal their lives and protect their lives and their wounds, Lord, that every single, not another death would be added to the, the t already awful total. We pray for all of the men and women that were in the 22,000 in that arena and now the post-traumatic stress of all of it, the horror of experiencing something that you never intend any human being to ever be in the middle of. And we ask that you would brood upon their hearts and their minds and that you would minister, Lord, your grace toward their need. We pray that you would use it in that sovereign way that you do to draw each and every person that's been affected by this incredible outburst of evil in the kingdom of darkness into human history and that you would use it, Lord, to draw people into your arms and into the comfort and the wisdom, Lord, and the everything that can only come from you. And we pray these things, Lord, and, and just lifting it up to you. We pray as well this morning that you would bless us in these final two verses as we close out this wonderful book of Acts, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word this morning? Speak to us as a church. Speak to us individually, Lord, as these two verses are intended to uh, impact us for edification, exhortation, and comfort. And we pray that by your Spirit they would have that work in us and in our relationship with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
This morning we complete our uh, study of the book of Acts with uh, the 79th study uh, that has constituted this series and a series that's taken us a little bit over two years in order to uh, accomplish it. And as we leave the book of Acts this morning as a congregation uh, after we've uh, shared such a long period of time in it, these uh, mutual uh, meal that the book of Acts has been to us over this period of time as a, as a congregation. I don't want our departure from it to be, uh, you know, abrupt or dispassionate or just kind of like you've driven off of a cliff and now we move on to the next thing. I want this morning to be a time where we uh, engage in some reflection uh, as we leave a book that I trust has become a friend to us over these long weeks and these couple of years. It's an interesting thing, I suppose, if you were to ask anyone who's a pastor what comes to their mind as they prepare sermons or what their intents are related to the Bible studies that they do teach, there'd be a lot of different things that uh, different people would have to say. One of my desires always in teaching the Word of God is to make the passage simple, to make it clear, and to see how it applies to our individual lives. And one of my desires is that every passage that we do study, uh, that that passage will in some way become a friend to us. And, and that's my desire, and I pray for it often publicly before I begin to teach the Bible and pray for it certainly each week. A friendship is, a, is a friend is someone that you have a relationship with, and God wants us in, and works very hard for us to develop a personal relationship with the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. And there's something wonderful that happens over a period of time where entire books of the Bible or certain passages of the Bible become friends. They become old friends. They become good friends. They become close uh, friends. For instance, you can take any uh, famous verse out of the Bible that you'd like to use as an illustration. I'll take something out of uh, Philippians chapter 1, where in the course of your individual as a new Christian, your individual reading of, of uh, the books of the Bible, and you come to Philippians chapter 1, or maybe you hear a sermon uh, preached on it, and, uh, where Paul declared to the church there, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. And then the history now begins with that passage. The relationship begins with that passage. And each time we read it through the succeeding years, we build upon it a little bit more. Our relationship with it becomes a little bit deeper. Then we hear somebody teach on it or, and uh, somebody else teach on it, and the relationship becomes deeper and it becomes stronger. But the whole Bible becomes that over time as the Holy Spirit gives uh, life to the Scriptures. And entire books of the Bible uh, become that. Probably each of us as Christians in this room have one or two. We love the whole Bible. The whole Bible, we love it. And, it, and we need every bit of it, every jot, every tittle, every verse, every chapter, every bit of it. But there are certain books or certain books of the Bible that become our best friends. They become our favorites for reasons because our, our relationship, whether it's taken us through a season that's difficult in life or it has shown us something of God that we so desperately needed uh, to know or it has developed something within our character, our Christian character that uh, we never knew could happen before. But somehow these books then become, uh, become 
are favorites because of the impact that they, they have. And, uh, as, and I remember very early as a brand new Christian, early as a new Christian at Calvary Chapel of Napa, when I was first being exposed to such large sections of the Bible all at once, and how many of these passages, I could tell you uh, so many of the passages that, that we studied in the first six months of me getting going with the Lord and what good friends they became to me at that time, and many good friends added to them, and, and how every time I read those passages now, I go deeper into them, the memory of the history that we have, but then building uh, upon that. And, and they become, the Bible becomes a deeper friend as the years go on. And as we've gone through the book of Acts, it's, it's, we would take a moment to just reflect upon it this morning and just stop and think about where we have been in the last uh, two years, where the Holy Spirit has taken us all over the ancient uh, world, Jerusalem, Samaria, Gaza, the road to Damascus, Caesarea, Joppa, Antioch, where Christians were first called Christians there, Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Fairhaven, Malta, Syracuse, uh, Regium, Puteoli, uh, and Rome. And these places have a place in our heart uh, now. These are places that we have visited as a part of church uh, history. And as we've gone through the book of Acts, to just think about all of the people that we've met in the course of the study, people that have become our friends, people we've become very, very familiar with as a result of studying their lives and studying what they faced and how they handled it. We think of Jesus, of course, as he began the entire book with his ascension into heaven, and then the apostle Peter, and then the apostle John, Ananias and Sapphira, Stephen the evangelist, who was also uh, a deacon, uh, Saul of Tarsus, uh, later to become the apostle Paul, Philip the evangelist, and also a deacon, the Ethiopian eunuch that he preached to, Dorcas, Cornelius, the centurion out of uh, Caesarea, he and his whole family become uh, saved as a result of the preaching of Peter, James the Apostle, James the brother of Jesus, Rhoda, Mark John, uh, John Mark rather, we know him simply as Mark for the most part, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Lydia, Priscilla and Aquila, Eutychus, uh, Apollos, Dr. Luke, Aristarchus, Felix, Festus, King Agrippa, uh, Julius, all of the citizens uh, of Malta, all of the Christians of, of, Jerusalem, uh, of Rome that came to Paul as he uh, came uh, closer to the city. And we're introduced to these Christians from all over the world, all over the ancient world, and every kind of uh, background that a person could have, Jew and Gentile alike. And as we've gone through the book of Acts, you think about all of the events that we've witnessed, not with our eyes, but with something even superior uh, to that. Uh, you can see something with our eyes and miss the entire intent. When we engage in something by the Word of God, uh, authored by the Holy Spirit, then he focuses our attention on exactly what we need to come away from that particular event, uh, 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 away with, with that, and think about what we've witnessed by the Holy Spirit, and then all of the lessons associated with them. 
Jesus' ascension into heaven, his promise of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the formal birth of the church on the day of Pentecost when Peter got up and he preached and 3,000 people were uh, born again in that moment, the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate by uh, Peter and by John, giving Peter another opportunity to stand and preach again to that religious crowd, and 2,000 more were saved. The death of Ananias and Sapphira in the early church for bringing hypocrisy into the purity uh, of that that early church in Jerusalem, the establishment of the office of deacons, Stephen's great sermon, and the price that he paid for preaching that sermon, his martyrdom, the revival that God brought to Samaria through Philip, and then his witness after that uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, the conversion again of that Roman centurion and his entire household in Caesarea at the preaching, the very uh, the preaching of a very reluctant uh, apostle. Uh, Peter, and then Paul's very fruitful first missionary journey, filled with miracles, but also with his being stoned at the city of Lystra, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, providing, uh, protecting the salvation on, a ba- on the basis of grace through faith, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And then Paul's second missionary journey as he goes to Philippi, and there he meets the dealer in purple, uh, Lydia, who then hosts the church there in Philippi, the casting out of the demon in the slave girl there, the singing of Paul and Silas in the prison uh, uh, that night, and at midnight the earthquake that occurred, and then the salvation of the keeper of the prison and his entire family as a result of it. Then on to Berea, where they were spoken of as being more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word of God with all readiness of mind, and then they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. And then to Athens, where Paul delivered this great Christian apologetic in that uh, philosophical center of the ancient world, the founding of the church at Corinth, a church that would bless the Apostle Paul and would repeatedly break his heart through the years. And then his third missionary journey, the birth of the church of Ephesus occurring at that time, all of the miracles that were involved in that, the voluntary burning of all of the books by the sorcerers and and, and uh, the, the magic and so forth. Paul's great and, and very sobering address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter uh, 20. And then most recently, as we've been studying in here, Paul's arrest in Jerusalem and then his subsequent trials in Caesarea and a, a very, very eventful trip uh, to the city of Rome. We remember that Paul was now, as we come to the conclusion of the book here, that Paul uh, is now in Rome. He's being held in Roman custody, and he's waiting for his case to be heard by uh, the Roman Caesar, the Caesar by the name of Nero. This was the right of any Roman citizen if they felt they had been unsatisfactorily handled by the magistrates of uh, 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 the governors of the various regions of the Roman Empire, they could appeal their case to Caesar. 
Caesar, and so Paul did uh, as a citizen of Rome. And while he's there waiting for trial, we're told that he rented a house that he lived in during this time. This was the kind of privilege that wasn't uncommon in the Roman Empire at that time. It would become uh, less frequent a little bit later in the empire. But when a, a prisoner... No charges had been formally established against him. His guilt certainly wasn't uh, clear to anyone. He wasn't a flight risk. They could then rent some kind of a room or a small house in which to lodge in. But even as Paul was able to rent that and not be in in a formal prison, it didn't mean that he wasn't uh, in custody. Uh, 24 hours a day for those two years in six-hour shifts, he was shackled to at least one Roman uh, guard. You might wonder as you kind of read through this, wonder where Paul got the money to afford this kind of thing. And we don't know for certain uh, how he got it. It isn't revealed to us clearly in the passage. But it isn't unlikely that from many of the churches that he had established in his three missionary journeys, that them hearing now him being in custody in this way, that offerings were taken or gifts of financial gifts were then uh, forwarded to him in Rome. We know certainly that the church at Philippi was very active in this way because he sends them a letter uh, that he wrote during that period of incarceration, and he thanks them for not one offering that they had sent, but repeated offerings that they had sent to him. It isn't unlikely, too, that the Christians that made up the church in Rome, seeing Paul in this condition, probably would have helped him out uh, a little bit financially. And it wasn't unheard of in in this particular point in uh, the history of the Roman Empire for prisoners that were given the kind of latitude that Paul was given for them to be able to actually engage in their trade. And so it's entirely possible that Paul spent some time tent-making Uh, though in custody, and then use that money then to be able to uh, have an accommodation that would make it easy for people to visit him and for him to maintain a spiritual influence into the body of Christ. We don't know for certain, but these are some of the means by which uh, it might have happened. The book of Acts ends with a two-verse record, and that's all we have is just a two-verse record of Paul's uh, two-year imprisonment in Rome while he was waiting on appeal to have his case heard uh, by Caesar. We notice that these two years were very active, and uh, Paul wasn't an idle man. He certainly didn't uh, just sit and wait until the trial came uh, to pass. We're told in verse 30 that there was this constant stream of friends to visit him and other visitors, when you read there in uh, verse 30 that uh, he received all who came to him, the word received there in the original language in the Greek, it is in the imperfect tense. And so it literally means that they came constantly. They came habitually. There was a constant flow of people into that house in order to uh, interact with the apostle uh, Paul, people coming to see him, people coming uh, to ask questions of him, to learn from him. And we know as we read through the rest of the Bible and kind of put pieces together that uh, these visitors included Aristarchus. They included Dr. Luke, uh, Timothy, Tychicus, Epaphroditus, even Mark John, who had uh, bailed on him in the first missionary journey. A reconciliation occurred. And no doubt many, many other people uh, from Rome and traveling from other places, hearing him in this condition, uh, availed themselves of the opportunity to come 
and speaks of spiritual issues with the apostle uh, Paul. Everyone, we're told in verse 30, that wished to see him were received by him. What did they talk about? They didn't talk about the Niners. They didn't talk about the Raiders or whatever might be going on in the Olympic Games of the ancient world or any of those kind of things. They really gave, as we see in verse 31, I mean, Paul gave his time to two very lofty themes, preaching the kingdom of God, and then second, the teaching of the things concerning the Lord Jesus. And so there was the preaching of the kingdom of God. Everyone that would come in to that room or into that house that was not yet a Christian, he would preach the kingdom of God to them and essentially tell them that there's another kingdom, there's a kingdom of God that exists. It's as real as the Roman Empire and this kingdom that you're a part of, but you've already become a casualty of the sin that marks this particular uh, kingdom, or you become a casualty of the kingdom within your own heart. Is there any freedom for you? Is there any forgiveness of sins? Is there any freedom from sin and so forth? And to let them know that by being born again, by putting your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you can become a citizen in God's kingdom. And so many people coming to know the Lord. But once you come to know the Lord, you don't need to be preached at any longer. And so he goes on then to teach, we're told here. Now I need to be taught as a new Christian. And what did he teach them? He told the, uh, taught them the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, teaching him what it was that who Jesus was, both Christ and Lord, teaching them of Jesus' life, his ministry, uh, his teaching, and then what he calls us to do and what he calls us to be once we become Christians. And this is what he focused on for those two years as people would uh, flow through that house. Now, while the book of Acts ends at this point in terms of its record in, uh, in church history, the rest of the Bible allows us to fill in these two years of Paul's life a, a little bit and then also to fill in in terms of painting a bit of a portrait related to the remainder of his life, which is very interesting to us because of the influence that the Apostle Paul had upon the early church and continues to have today through his epistles. The book of Acts is not a, a book that is about the Apostle Paul. It is about the church, the early church. But Paul plays a very dominant uh, part in that in the latter part of it. So he's, it's interesting to us to know what became of him. What, did he, what happened after those two years and, and during those two years? And what happened uh, after those two years? During his two-year imprisonment in Rome, because he was unable now to travel, so what he did is he took to writing. And during this time, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote four New Testament letters, uh, four books of the Bible during this two-year imprisonment. He wrote his, uh, the book of Ephesians. He wrote the book of Colossians. Uh, he, he wrote the book of uh, Philippians. He wrote the letter in the book of, of Philemon. And you look at these books, and if you were to ask the average room full of Christians, um, uh, what is your uh, favorites among the Apostle Paul's uh, letters, probably 40% of the room would, would vote and say, uh, one of those four has become my favorite in my, my Christian life. These four books are always referred to as the prison epistles, 
for the simple reason that he wrote them uh, from that Roman prison during that period of time. He had already written earlier his letter to the uh, churches in Galatia. He had already written First and Second Thessalonians. He had already written his first two letters uh, to the. Uh, he had written his two letters to the church uh, at uh, at Corinth, and he had already written his epistle to the Romans. And I think that perhaps uh, the reason that the, part of the reason behind this incarceration, all of it's absolutely unfair related to the Apostle Paul, but I think that the Lord knew if he was going to get any more letters like this out of the Apostle Paul, when you got the absolute uh, energizer bunny in terms of an apostle going, doing, changing, moving, this is how the guy lived is you'd almost have to incarcerate him uh, to get him to settle down in one place long enough uh, to then get these letters uh, written through him. I mean, if Paul had gone uh, and visited each of these places, he had returned to Ephesus, he had made his first visit then uh, to Colossae, he had returned to Philippi, he had hand-delivered the, you know, the letter to uh, Philemon, then everything that he would have done if he had gone to these cities physically, everything that he would have communicated would have been oral. He would have never put it down in writing. But the fact that he was in prison forced him to put it into writing, and these letters have now become a blessing to untold millions of people right into this room, uh, all the way down uh, through 2,000 years uh, of history. In Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, we're given some insights into the effectiveness of Paul's ministry uh, there in Rome during his incarceration and uh, concerning the impact that his, his ministry had upon the Roman palace guard. This was the highest of the Roman uh, guard. This was praetorian. These were the men that were assigned to protect the Caesar. They were also assigned as a part of their responsibility to be changed to uh, prisoners like Paul. And so here are these guards that are, are in, in six-hour uh, shifts for two years. Uh, Paul then writes to uh, Philippi, the church there, and speaks to them of the impact that his life and ministry had had upon them. In Philippians chapter 1, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Don't be bummed out about me being in prison. You're wasting your time, uh, in essence. He then went on, but now we get to the real text again. He said, so that it has become evident to the entire palace guard and to all of the rest everyone in the Roman military in Rome, that my chains are in Christ. Everybody knows that I am a prisoner, not because of some wrongdoing that I've done, but because uh, of Christ and my witness to Christ. Concerning his impact that he had in Rome, uh, he speaks of the impact that it even had upon Caesar's household, where perhaps uh, members of Caesar's family became Christians as a result of Paul's ministry or attendants that attended personally to uh, Caesar Nero. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, all the saints greet you as he closed the letter. He said, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. People were being saved right up the chain uh, towards Caesar. 
He spoke of other Christians in Rome and the impact that his imprisonment had upon them. Uh, again to the church at Philippi, and most of the brethren, he said, in the Lord, speaking of the Christians in Rome, became confident in my chains, and they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so Paul's ministry is these Christians got to see him, be close to him, learn and grow from him. It created a boldness in their Christian life and in their witness that they had not uh, possessed before. And then at some point in, during the two years, a runaway slave enters into that house, and he's of the name of Onesimus, and he doesn't know the Lord yet. He's unsaved at this particular point in time, and he visited Paul in this rented house. He hears the gospel. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he becomes born again. He becomes a Christian. And Paul said the relationship became more than that. He said, I view this young man as a, as a son to me. And Paul then proceeded during, in the course of these two years, we're talking about, to write a letter to a man by the name of uh, Philemon, who was the owner of Onesimus before he fled his slavery. And then he had Onesimus deliver the letter to, uh, uh, to Philemon, in which Paul said, I want you to know that here is, is your slave that had run away. And it's because of his faith in Christ that he returns to you. But don't receive him as a prisoner. Don't receive him as a slave. Receive him as a son from me. Receive him as a member of the body of Christ. Following these two years that are spoken of here in these two verses, and then beyond into Paul's death as we're able to kind of piece it together from the New Testament epistles, this two-year imprisonment was from 61 A.D. to 63 A.D., and then Paul was finally, when he was brought before Caesar for trial, he was evidently acquitted of any charges, if they could even find any charges against him, and he was released from custody. And so for the next two years, 63 A.D. to 65 A.D., he proceeded now, he was free, a free man again, and he proceeded to continue in his evangelistic uh, work, and he made his first visit to the city of Colossae. He returned to the city of Ephesus. He ministered in Macedonia. It, there's an indication that he perhaps went to Spain, which was a dream uh, of his. He returned to visit Corinth. He then went to Miletus. He spent a winter in uh, Nicopolis and then visited Troas. And during this entire period of time, these uh, two years of his freedom, he wrote First Timothy and Titus. And then in 66 AD, just four years away from the destruction of the Jewish temple in, in Jerusalem at the hands of, of Rome, and I, uh, uh, in, Paul did not live to see uh, the horror of that. But it's 66 AD, Paul was rearrested. It's his second imprisonment. And we don't know why he was arrested. There's no absolute clarity within the scriptures on it, except that we do know that during that period of time, uh, Caesar Nero, uh, there was a fire in the city of Rome, and the poor section of Rome uh, burnt to the ground. And there's indication that Caesar Nero was behind it because he wanted to get rid of all of these riffraff neighborhoods and these homes that are built of wood and so forth so that he could build a greater Rome as a monument to 
himself. But the backlash among the Roman people against it made him realize he couldn't be associated with it, and so he had to find a scapegoat. And he blamed the Christians for it. And it unleashed a tremendous persecution against Christians uh, at that time. And perhaps Paul, as that fire happened in 64 AD, as the persecution would kind of build through the next couple of years, Paul as a leader in in the church was arrested for simply being a Christian and a leader. And this second imprisonment of his was a much harsher imprisonment than the first one, and it was during this time that he wrote his final epistle, Second Timothy. He knew he was not going to survive this, that he would die a martyr's death at the hands of Rome. And then according to historical tradition, Paul was martyred. He was decapitated in late 66 A.D. or early uh, 67 A.D. It's helpful for me to get the big picture related to these people. And there's not going to be a test at the end of the sermon for how much of this you retain. But little by little, it helps us to realize the big picture related to his life. And it helps me, and I'm sure it helps you as well. One of the things that you can't help but notice concerning the book of Acts is how utterly abruptly it ends. Uh, There's no closure. Uh, There's no kind of soft, winding uh, end uh, to the book. It's almost as if Luke here or somebody in our life would be telling us a a story and then stop mid-sentence in the story. And you stand there waiting for the rest of the story. I'm on edge. What happened after that? What do you have to say to that? And then uh, and, and the book ends in just that way. It, 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 it ends in a way that communicates incompleteness. That's the word that I would use for it. And I think all of that is absolutely and completely by design. Because here you have Dr. Luke, the author of this book, as well as the gospel according to Luke, and the Holy Spirit. They didn't want to leave the reader of this book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, They didn't want to leave us with a sense that all significant church history ended with the Apostle Paul or that it ended with the apostolic age, but rather it's written with the idea of communicating uh, to us that church history continued on after all of these events and that it continues and is intended to continue through our lives, through the lives of Christians, all the way down through the age. And I remember until all of this gives way one day to a new heaven and a new earth. I remember being a very new Christian, very, very new Christian, and uh, and was absorbing the Word of God, reading it, it, it voraciously, and I remember being at an evening service at Calvary Chapel of Napa, and I was looking for my wife, I think, after the service. She was serving in, in children's ministry. And I went upstairs to where the youth, uh, place, the youth meeting room was on that second uh, story. And uh, as I came by the youth room, there was this poster that was on the door that you couldn't uh, help but notice. And on that poster that was on the door, it read, be a part of Acts 29. 
Well, I thought, what in the world is Acts 29 that they've made a poster for it? So I stood right in front of it, and I opened up my Bible to read Acts chapter 29, and I turned to it, and I discovered there is no Acts chapter 29. It stops at chapter 28. So I felt a little foolish, actually. Anybody that was, uh, uh, would be, have been watching would have known exactly what I was doing and probably looking in the other direction to spare me uh, the embarrassment uh, of it, but I never forgot it. And here you had a leader, and it's important for everyone, but here you had a leader of uh, the uh, high school-aged youth within the church that was reinforcing in them the realization at that young age, the realization that church history is continuing through us to this day in the unwritten uh, chapter that is known as Acts chapter 29. And again, that the Holy Spirit will continue to write this history all the way through uh, to the end of the age when all of this will give way as the Bible teaches to a new heaven and a new earth. But then the realization that in the meantime, all that we read in the book of Acts, all that we've experienced in the book of Acts, to realize that this is to be repeated in every generation. This is not a first generation thing, but repeated in every generation of church history until all of that comes to pass. I think it's important to realize and to know the final word of the book of Acts as it's written in uh, the original language of the New Testament is Greek. It was the great language of the ancient world. And Dr. Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he ends the book uh, of Acts with a particular Greek word, a singular Greek word. And, and when you know what we know about uh, Luke, uh, as you would read the gospel according to Luke, and he writes about people being healed, he writes about different things, he writes, he writes with a detail, he writes with a, um, a, a strategicness that you would expect of a doctor, the descriptions that he gives. There's no waste in it at all. And you see the same thing in the book of Acts as these different scenes are described. People marvel at the use of Greek in terms of what he does to describe uh, the scenes. And so it's when you look and you say, here is a man bringing this particular book to an end, and is he just going to run on a bunch of Greek words or a bunch of words to close the thing off, or is he going to use that final word strategically? And to know anything about Luke is to know that the final word that he closes this book with will not be an accidental uh, word, and he closes it with a single word in the Greek, that means unhindered. And when you read, and if, for instance, for me in the New King James, as I'm reading the last four words of verse 31, it says, and no one forbidding him. Four words in the English, but it is one word in the Greek, and it was the Greek word unhindered. No one forbidding him, unhindered. And, it, and, and I think that Paul, what Luke was intending to communicate to us very deliberately and to every generation of Christians is that if we will just but step into the shoes of our spiritual predecessors, into the events, 
into the miracles, the marvel of, of the book of Acts, if we will just immerse ourselves into this, not believe that it was something for a special group 2,000 years ago, but to believe that God wants to do all of this and be all of this in our generation, in every generation of uh, church uh, history, that as we would do that, as we would step out in the same way that they uh, stepped out, that yes, we will be resisted as God's kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God and the gospel always resisted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But behind all of that resistance is the word unhindered. The gospel can never be ultimately hindered. The kingdom of God can never be ultimately hindered. The, the great situation, the great uh, dilemma, the great uh, thing that everything hinges upon is whether we will in our generation believe these things to be true about us and then ask for the grace of God to be upon our lives to do this once again in our generation. And if we will do it, we will find that the kingdom of God and the gospel is as unhindered in this day as ever it was in pagan Rome and in uh, the early church, as Jesus uh, declared to Peter concerning his confession of him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so this morning, we want to close our time in the book of Acts with this review of things and to look at how it ends here, but then also to partake of the Lord's Supper. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite the worship team to come out and the men to come forward to, to serve the Lord's Supper to us. But I want us, just before we leave the book, not to just race to the next one, so to speak, and be on our way, but just to think about where we've been in this book, who we've met, who've become our friends, and all the things that the Holy Spirit has opened up to us but then to look at the sacrifice represented in the Father and the giving of his Son to even produce the kingdom of God in human history, to even provide a way to be saved, to provide mankind with a gospel, with good news in terms of the disaster of our spiritual condition and our separation from God, and then to look at Jesus who paid the ultimate price in order to make that gospel true and real and to provide it and to make it available to each and every one of us. But then to look further into the commitment that we see in the lives of these men and women. They're no different than you and I. Yes, we have iPhones, big deal. And they didn't have it, eh, you know, kind of a thing. We're so great and listen, we're no smarter than them. We're no dumber than them. We don't have any more or less problems than them. They're just men and women like us. But to see how they stepped up into their calling and their faithfulness to it and all the obstacles that they face, and they're the same obstacles that we face, and yet their faithfulness to it 
in order that one day in 1960 or 1967 or 1979 or 2017 that we might one day ourselves hear the gospel, an untainted gospel, a gospel kept alive through 2,000 years of history so that we could one day hear it with our ears, have the Holy Spirit bear witness to it in our heart and be born again into this amazing family as has happened to us as Christians. And to just stop and think about the sacrifice that is behind all of that before those words ever entered our ears and before the reality of that gospel ever became true within our hearts. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, uh, what, what you can do if you'd like to partake of communion with us this morning as we remember uh, Jesus this morning if you look in, in you, as you sit here and you say, I believe I am a sinner. I believe God's assessment of me. I believe I've been less than perfect all of my life and that God is so holy that my sin has separated me from a relationship with him. I've always felt that there's something more to life than what I've experienced. And I also believe that God loved me so much that he would send his only begotten son to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sin. And I believe that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that's the gospel and that's the Savior that pleases God. And I want to make him my Savior this morning. And when you just say something like this to God right where you're seated right now, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again and then partake of the Lord's Supper with us now. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you're not yet ready to become a Christian, continue to enjoy the remainder of, of the service, but don't partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord wants, and I want to, as well, I want you to partake of the Lord's Supper one day when you are in that relationship with God that the gospel provides for you to be in. So if the men will come forward now and the worship team will uh, come on out, they will lead us in worship. We will pass out the bread first, hold on to the bread. We will then pray together and partake together, and then we will do likewise with the cup. Let's worship the Lord.